First Kings chapter 18. We're kind of jumping into the story of Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal and uh, the false god of Baal. So Ahab is king in Israel, and he is a wicked king. And Elijah prayed that there would be no rain coming on the land, and so there's a severe drought happening. And now there is a showdown between the gods of Baal and the true God of Israel. So 1 Kings 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, 
Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Behold the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. We thank you for the blessing it is to get to come and receive your word. Lord, we pray now that as your word is opened, that you would bless the preaching of your word. May it strengthen your people, and may you be glorified. Lord, grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive. Uh, we thank you and praise you and ask that you would move through the preaching of your word. May your truth that is spoken nothing but. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began last week looking at the mission of God in the world, asking the question, what is the story that we are in? What is God up to? What is he doing in the world? And the answer that we saw was that God's mission in the world is to redeem his fallen creation. To bring creation to God's original purpose, as we saw outlined in the Dominion Mandate. A filled and subdued earth. One that is full of God's image bearers in communion with God and with one another, fruitfully exercising dominion that is ruling on God's behalf and for his glory. As the prophets put it, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And as we also saw, it will be through the reign, the kingdom and reign of the Messiah, that this work of redemption and reconciliation would be accomplished. The Lord Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again, and declared that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He received an everlasting kingdom. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Christ has entrusted his church with the ministry of reconciliation. As we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God making his appeal through us. And we have a big job ahead of us. As you may have noticed, there are still many idols in the land. There are still many enemies that have set themselves up against the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Satan has been defeated, but he is not yet destroyed. The kingdom of darkness is the losing side, but it is still putting up a fight. Christ is reigning, 
but has not yet subdued all his enemies. And as we saw last week, Christ's kingdom, even as prophesied in the Old Testament, was not something that would arrive fully formed, rather was said to be something that would start small, but would then grow and fill the whole earth. As we saw last week, it was the rock cut by no human hand in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. The rock which struck the idol, representing the pagan nations of the earth, shattered it, and then the rock grew into a mountain that filled the earth, Daniel 2.35. We saw Christ's kingdom was Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father as his enemies are gradually made his footstool, Psalm 110.1. The kingdom uh, is revealed to us through the child who was born, the son who would be given, who would bear the government upon his shoulder, reigning on the throne of David and of the increase of his government and of peace. There would be no end, Isaiah 9, 7. And as Christ himself taught, it is the mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, which grows to become the largest plant in the garden. It is the leaven which spreads through the whole loaf until the entire loaf would be leavened. And so, here we are. Christ is reigning. He has sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time for his enemies to be made his footstool. His kingdom has been established, but there are still many idols in the land. The kingdom has been established, and it is now at war with the kingdom of darkness. What this means for us is that as citizens and ambassadors of Christ's kingdom, we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict. Ephesians 5, 10 to 12, Paul refers to this conflict and tells the church to put on the full armor of God so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The world is a battleground. It is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And we know the decisive battle was fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has now commissioned his people to disciple the nations. That is, to bring him his inheritance. Satan and his angels have staked their claims they claim souls and territory as their own, which means that if we are faithful to Christ's commission, we will find ourselves coming in to conflict with the kingdom of darkness. Now, as Scripture presents it, in all things, there are really only two options. Since it is that we live in God's world and we are his creatures, every last one of us owes God our worship, honor, reverence, service, and praise. As you see, this is exactly what God has commanded of each one of us. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. So God is God, and since he is God, he deserves to be honored and worshipped and praised and served as God. 
This creates then a very clear dichotomy that cuts through the middle of all human existence. In everything that we are and everything that we do, all people will either be worshipping and serving the one true and living God, or they will not be. You will either worship the one true and living God, or you will be worshipping and serving idols of various kinds. Now, something in your heart that has taken the place of God, that you've taken as a substitute for God. As Romans 1 describes it, saying of unbelievers, that although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. So notice the language of that exchange. At the heart of the matter, if we do not worship God the Creator, we have functionally exchanged Him for something else, a substitute of some kind. It is the Creator or a creature, the one true and living God, or idols of various kinds. And so whether we're talking about false religions with real physical idols, or if we're speaking of ideologies that would oppose Christ and his kingdom, or even supposedly non-religious but sinful lifestyles, which are celebrated in various cultures, we have many things that function as idols. The commitments that people have toward these things are preventing them from turning to Christ. These things represent the schemes of Satan and his angels. Just consider what Paul said about the idolatry of his own day uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 19-20. In speaking about food sacrificed to idols, Paul writes this, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. We see from Scripture there are not any legitimate uh, true rival gods. There are no other legitimate uh, religions. God is not simply one option among many. And Paul even says that the pagans that are sacrificing to their pagan gods, to their idols, uh, were really sacrificing to demons. That is what was behind these idols. So, with this understanding, what then ought to be the Christian response? Right, as we look around us, we see a world full of idolatry. We see many demonic strongholds in our world. These are idols that will need to go. These are enemies of Christ that need to be subdued under its feet. And so how is the Christian to respond? What is to be our attitude toward the idols of these demon gods? Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Now many of us know of the story of Gideon. He is best known for the episode with the fleece. 
and the victory that God uh, gave him, led him to, as he fought 10,000 Midianites with only 300 Israelites. But back before that great story, Gideon already had a nickname uh, for some things that he had done. Uh, Judges 6.25. Now Israel in these days was full of idolatry, and Gideon's own father had an idol on his property. And God called Gideon to smash it. Let's read together, Judges 6.25. That night the Lord said to him, to Gideon, Take your father's bull, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull, and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So notice here, God, as it turns out, does not have much respect for religious pluralism. Gideon's own father had an altar and a shrine for worship of pagan gods, and Yahweh tells Gideon, you know, back up the tractor, take your father's bull, tie it to the altar, and pull that whole thing down. Then build an altar to God in its place. Then get chopping. Right? Take your axe, take that Asherah pole, chop it down, and then slaughter your father's second bull, and using the wood from the Asherah pole, present a burnt offering to the Lord. And using the wood from the idol for the fire. Now that is quite the set of instructions, and it reveals a lot of how God views idolatry. Now Gideon obeys, but he does it at night for fear of his family and the men of his town. Now let's keep reading down in verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal, and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is a god, if he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now, as Gideon feared might be the case, the people of the town were not thrilled about having their gods being smashed and burnt. So the men of the town come to Gideon's father, Joash, and ask for him to be brought out and executed. But Joash responds, will you contend for Baal? If Baal is a god, then let him contend for himself. In other words, let Baal do something about this. 
if he is truly a god. May he defend his own altar and his own honor. And so Gideon that day received a new nickname, Jerubbaal, which means let Baal contend. This reminds me of another story, a great story from church history, of a man named Winfried, renamed Boniface. Now Boniface was a missionary to the Germanic peoples whose ministry was so successful that he eventually was named the patron saint both of the Netherlands and Germany. But what he's best known for, however, is the felling of Thor's oak, or Donner's oak. Now the pagan world was a bloody, brutal world full of tribal conflict, murder, war, human sacrifice, and all manner of barbaric violence. And so Boniface, in his ministry to these people, in order to show the supremacy of the true and living God, walking in the spirit of Elijah in his showdown with the prophets of Baal, or in the spirit of Gideon, Jerubbaal, uh, Boniface rounded up the townspeople and declared that he was going to chop down the great oak tree that served as their pagan shrine. As one pastor tells the story, the pagans laughed. For they knew that if someone so much as broke a twig from their sacred tree, Thor would surely strike him down before the branch hit the forest floor. And so with great courage, strength, and determination, Boniface took his axe and began to rain blow after blow into the trunk of the mighty tree. Now as legend has it, a great wind arose and blew the tree over before he could even complete the task. However, uh, it's been noted that there's a letter between Boniface and the Pope that says that it actually took several hours uh, of chopping. Uh, this was a big tree. In any case, the tree did come crashing down before the astonished pagans, and the lumber from the tree was used to build a church. This then led to a great gospel harvest among the pagans who converted to Christianity, becoming worshippers of the one true and living God. So if Gideon became Jerubbaal after tearing down Baal's altar, Boniface, to mangle some languages, we could call Jerub-Thor. <laughs> let, let Thor contend with him. Brothers and sisters, we as the church need to have the courage of Boniface. We need the spirit of men like Elijah and Gideon. We must have God's attitude toward the idols in the world. We, too, must engage the idols of our day. Formidable, though they may seem to us, in the end they will be shown to be as impotent to stop the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ as Thor was to stop the acts of Boniface, or as Baal was to rain down fire from heaven on Elijah, or to strike down Gideon for smashing his altar. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He has received all authority in heaven and on earth. As we saw in Colossians, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities, and that is the demonic powers, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. The idols that stand against Christ and his kingdom must be and will be so brothers and sisters, let us wield the axe. Let us take the unconquerable word of God, the invincible gospel, 
and begin hacking with all our might at the idols in the land. Let us see them rightly. They are enemies of Christ that need to be made his footstool. They are strongholds in which Satan holds captive the souls of men and women made in the image of God. And so let us engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it can be tempting at times to want to follow the literal example of Gideon and to back up our truck to physically topple uh, certain physical idols that we see uh, raised up in our communities. And while at certain times I do believe there may be a place for that kind of thing, the normal operating procedure that we have been given is not to use physical force. While there is a particular place for the physical acts of Boniface to chop down idols, we must remember that the battles we are fighting are first and foremost spiritual battles, and we are fighting against spiritual enemies. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4. Paul reminds the church here of the nature of the battle that we're fighting and the nature of the weapons that we've been given. He writes this, We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Catch that, he says, our weapons are not of the flesh. They are not carnal weapons. They are not physical weapons. But Paul says, they are much more powerful. Our weapons, he says, have divine power to destroy strongholds. The acts of Boniface would have accomplished nothing if it had not been accompanied by the sword and the work of the Spirit. A physical axe can chop down a physical idol, but it cannot topple a spiritual stronghold. Here's the reality. If you were to chop down or pull down the pagan shrine, but there was no heart change among the pagans, guess what they're doing tomorrow? They're going to pick that shrine back up again. So Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are much more powerful. They are much more effective. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. As the truth of the gospel collides with the lies of idolatry, these demonic strongholds will eventually topple. Secularism, formidable as it may seem, is a particularly wobbly stronghold. I believe God has been showing the world more and more clearly that there are no foundations to this thing. It is not grounded on the truth. And as the Lord Jesus taught, the foolish man who built upon the sand will see his whole house collapse. They have nothing. <laughs> the emperor of secularism has no clothes. They do not know what men and women are. 
Their lies are transparent and will not hold up to simple cross-examination. Consider our culture will celebrate the murder of the unborn and call it health care. They will mutilate healthy bodies and call that gender affirmation surgery, while in our country, criminalizing counseling that would encourage someone to be at peace and the body God gave them as conversion therapy. Follow that. Encouraging someone to be at peace in their body, that is harmful conversion therapy. But mutilating healthy bodies to try to become the opposite sex is called gender affirmation. If this fortress were a castle, it is made out of fiberglass. As Douglas Wilson put it, the only reason why this Disneyland castle of secularism is still standing is because the catapults of evangelicalism have been launching wadded-up balls of cotton candy, close quote. Or to return to Paul's metaphor, the only reason that the strongholds are still standing is because the church has not been using its weapons to even attempt to destroy these strongholds. Let us live out our confidence in the gospel. You know, the church is a people of first-hand knowledge of the power of the Holy Spirit of God and of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just consider your own life. All of us, at one point, were at enmity with God. We were hostile to Him, living in sin and rebellion until at just the right time, the Spirit of God moved in our hearts so that we responded in faith to the gospel we had been taught. At some point, all of us were brought to conviction for our sins, and saw the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and promise of forgiveness as the most beautiful thing and the most glorious news that we had ever heard. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. God removed your heart of stone, and granted you a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, 26. God made you alive when you were dead in transgression and sin. God delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God opened your heart so that you would pay attention to what you had been to what you had heard. Like the wind, the spirit blew where he wished and caused you to be born again. We, of all people, know the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We know because we have experienced it as God has changed our hearts, and we have seen it in many others as God has transformed their hearts. So let us engage with confidence we know his power. There is nothing in hell or on earth that can withstand the power of the Spirit of God. So let us be confident in the simple, unvarnished gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves sinners like us. And let this confidence we have extend to all of the Word of God. We must be a people who believe it all the way down and all the way across. 
When you consider the power of the sword of the Spirit as a weapon that the kingdom of darkness cannot survive, what would you expect will be the enemy's main strategy against it? He will try to convince us not to use it. Bodhi Bakum tells a hypothetical meeting of two knights in battle. He says the first knight draws his sword, and the second knight says, I do not believe in thine sword. Well, the first knight now has two options. He could enter into a philosophical and scientific discussion about metallurgy, anatomy, and physiology, explaining why it is very important for him to believe in the sword. Or option two, cut him. He will either believe, or very shortly, it will not matter. Close quote. Our enemy will employ a variety of strategies to convince us not to wield the sword against them. I think one of the most successful strategies the enemy has used in this has been to make Christians embarrassed by Scripture. An example is given of something God says or does, usually from the Old Testament, and the secularist looks at the Christian and says with disgust, you don't really believe that, do you? Provided that the text has not been twisted or misapplied, we need to say without flinching or blushing, yes, absolutely. May God be true and every man a liar. If they can make us blush, we've already lost. If you are embarrassed by your sword, you will not be yielding it, wielding it very effectively. And to return to Brother Bodhi's example, if the enemy can convince you to lay aside your sword, the issue really is not that they don't believe in your sword. The issue is that you don't believe in your sword. When we look into the world and see the darkness of sin and what appears to be the formidable strongholds of the enemy, let us remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Let us remember that there is no heart that is too hard for the Spirit of God to transform. And let us remember that it is through the gospel that God has said he will move. And let us as well never be discouraged by the times where our efforts seem to have failed. Jesus told the parable of the sower for exactly this purpose. You may remember that story Jesus tells, the sower went out and scattered seed, some of the seed fell along the path, some fell in the rocky soil, and some fell among the thorns, and some fell on good soil. Jesus explains that the different types of soils were different responses to the gospel. In some people, there is no response at all. In others, there appears to be a response, and yet when troubles come, they fall away. But then in some, the seed takes root, and it yields fruit. We are told to expect all of these various responses. Now what can happen if we don't heed Jesus' words here is that we try once, receive a negative response, and then conclude that evangelism doesn't work and never try again. Now this would be like the sower taking one individual seed, placing it on the path, and when the bird swoops down and eats it, he concludes that sowing seed you know, must not really work. Or maybe there's something wrong with the seed. 
Or perhaps he tries a few more times, placing an individual seed into rocky soil or among the thorns. And when those get choked out or scorched by the sun, he becomes discouraged. Jesus taught us this parable so that we would not be discouraged by those kinds of reactions, but rather that we would expect them. We are not called to be stingy with our seeds. We are called to scatter seeds. To modify a quote from G.K. Chesterton, it's not that evangelism has been tried and found wanting, but for most of us it has been found difficult and left untried. The idols of our day can and will be toppled. The weapons we've been given, the seed we've been given, the word of God, our worship, joy, community, sacraments, these are potent weapons with divine power to destroy strongholds. So brothers and sisters, let us be willing to engage the darkness. Let us be a people who will hack away at these idols. You know, it is amazing. God has been doing a mighty work in this area. I have heard so many stories like this. People say, I was living a pretty indifferent life. Didn't care about God until either someone challenged me or just out of the blue, God grabbed a hold of me and his word came alive and I couldn't get enough and now I want to get baptized and follow the Lord. I have heard so many variations of that story. And so what Jesus said at his day, I believe is true of ours as well. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So let us be bold with the gospel. Let us try things we've never tried before. Let us use whatever sphere of influence we've been given and be an ambassador for Christ's kingdom in that place. Let us open our homes and invite people in. Let us show hospitality, bless your neighbors, and let them see what a Christian home is truly like. Let your joy be potent. May it adorn your doctrine. May our happiness be part of our argument. May we be a people of prayer. May we pray as Christ instructed us that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his vineyard. May we pray earnestly that we would see Christ's kingdom come in its fullness. That we would see God's name hallowed in every place, honored as holy. And let us pray that we would see his will done on earth as it is in heaven. In all of these things, we must begin with ourselves. As we aim to destroy the strongholds of the enemy and chop down the idols in the land, let us ensure, firstly, that we do not have any idols in our hearts. Again, an idol is anything that would take the place of God. As Jesus said, the greatest commandment, the summary of God's law, and therefore our highest duty, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. So God, therefore, must be first in our hearts. We must be striving to bring every area of our lives under the feet of Christ, for there is no part of life in which Christ's lordship does not apply. 
We would be nothing but hypocrites if we are proclaiming the Lordship of Christ over all things, seeking to remove the idols of the culture, if we had not first dealt with the idols in our own hearts. Again, this does not mean we need to be perfect before we engage, but we must, with a clear conscience, be battling all known sin in ourselves. Now, in all of this, I do not want to give the wrong impression. While we do have tremendous ground for confidence in the gospel and the word of God and the victory of Christ's kingdom, this should not be taken by us as a promise that everything is always going to go smoothly. Just to consider some of the stories we've looked at. After Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal, he was threatened by Jezebel and fled for his life and hid in a cave. Gideon, even after his uh, boldness and his new nickname, Gideon struggled to trust the word of God. And Boniface, the great axe-wielding saint, was later martyred for the gospel. Christ has not promised us that all will be smooth sailing. We are not promised a gentle escalator ride into the fullness of the kingdom. The fact is, wielding the axe against the idols is very likely to anger the pagans who worship them. And so we must be prepared to be hated and to know how to respond when we encounter that. And that will be the topic of our sermon next week. The hope that we have is not a hope for easy or comfortable lives, but rather we understand that we are soldiers living on a battleground. The hope that we have, the living hope, is that though we should be called to lay down our lives, our God knows the way out of the grave. And so the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I'll leave you this morning with the words of our Lord. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, pardon me, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him.